about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Drew Chacon, and he'll be answering your questions on saltwater fly pattern development. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Drew a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can, can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Drew Chacon about saltwater fly pattern development. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce Drew, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for that link under Drew's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Drew's book, Feather Brain, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And you can reach Stackpole at stackpolebooks.com to find out more about the books they have to offer. Now, Here's how you win. You've got to be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. could be a two-part question as well, so uh, be prepared and take good notes. The question will be about something we talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage. So pay attention, and, um, and hopefully you'll win Drew's book, Featherbrain. Our guest tonight is Drew Chacon. Drew is an author, award-winning outdoor writer and fly designer, photographer, lecturer, and materials expert whose passion for teaching the art of fly tying has inspired numerous how-to articles, books, and detailed instruction guides. He has lived and breathed the sports since he was tall enough to sit at the vice, and his fly creations are well-known and in high demand among saltwater anglers and guides across the globe. Drew has been a FFF certified casting instructor in commercial fly tire, for more than a decade, he is a designer for Umpqua Feather Merchants, and his patterns are sold in quality fly shops and have appeared in over 70 U.S. and international publications. He is the winner of 2016-2017 International Fly Tackle 
Dealer Best in Show Saltwater Fly Pattern Award, as well as the 2014 IFTD Iron Fly. At the beginning of 2018, Drew partnered with Wild River Press uh, Books to publish three new titles, Top Saltwater Flies for Bonefish, Top Saltwater Flies for Tarpon, and Top Saltwater Flies for Permit. Um, it's the largest tying instruction series on the subject ever published. Other uh, Drew's titles include Feather Brain, Developing, Testing, Improving Saltwater Patterns, uh, Baby Tarpon Flies, Redfish Flies, uh, Redfish 2 Flies, Snook Flies, Essential Bonefish Flies, Andros, and Essential uh, Permit Patterns. In addition to his ongoing work as an educator, Drew ties premium saltwater flies for sale through his company, Salty Fly Tying. He is the co-founder of Strip Strike University and frequently hosts destination schools and fishing adventures anywhere saltwater species swim. Drew, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you. Pleasure to be back. Yeah. Good to have you. So I want to pick your brain some more, that feather brain of yours. <laughs> so you, do it. You put it uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, the book intrigued me and um, as well as the other you know, uh, books um, through Wild River Press, which I think are just incredible um, uh, for, for fly tying patterns So, uh, in the salt. But um, uh, Feather Brain is kind of a unique book. Um, you've got a lot of how-to and, uh, you know, different ways to do, do saltwater patterns and development of them. And, and then, of course, you have, what, like some like 14 different patterns uh, that you illustrate in there as well. I think it was 14. Uh, yeah. If I remember, right? Something like that. Um, so you illustrate those as well. And so what I'd like to do is kind of, you know, follow the the book on some of the things that uh, that you talk about in there, and and talking about some of the patterns you created and why you created them, and some of the specific techniques you use to create those, which I think are interesting. So, um, so here we go. Um, so we it starts out, you know, we, we got a question in from Joe in in Sicklerville, New Jersey. Um, this kind of lead into what I want to talk to you about. But he asks, uh, when developing a fly, is color, size, or, or shape most important? I primarily fish off the New Jersey coast for striper and alvies. So you start out your book um, talking about your, you know, your method and your thoughts on how you organize to create a pattern. And, and basically you create, created like decision trees um, in your book, which are, very extensive. So, can we start out talking okay. about that, like how those sure. trees work, and maybe give us some examples of how your thought process works through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a past life, I was a consultant, so uh, organizing, you know, these thoughts were really difficult. I tried a number of different ways, and this was the only way that I could come up with to kind of get to how how you uh, emulate a prey item and why you use specific materials or colors or techniques or the hook or, you know, translucent thread or whatever, um, depending on what you're trying to emulate. So basically I started out with the fish, um, you know, what are we trying to catch? Where are we trying to catch it and, and what are they eating? So that's, that's kind of the beginning of the book. Um, to take it one step back further, you know, it was, it was designed to be a guide so you could design your own. It was a little right. bit different than anything out there at the time because I didn't necessarily want to 
teach you how to tie my flies. I wanted to teach you how to tie your own. And, you know, teaching kids, it came up a lot. Everybody wanted to design their own pattern. You know, after about 10 minutes of being at classes, they'd tie your fly, and then they went on to developing their own pattern, telling you all about it. So it was really, okay, here's how I do it. Um, and, you know, it's a cool-looking crab you just created, but here's, you know, here's why I would do something a little bit different. So using those trees, we kind of talk about, you know, um, specific materials, why you'd use um, one over another or a color for a certain scenario or a different hook. Um, it just helps narrow it all down with, you know, I don't know how many thousands of synthetic materials and choices that you have out there, you know, different sizes and colors. It, it's, you can get decision paralysis really quick. So that's how I kind of narrowed it down. What, what are we trying to emulate? What's it look like? What's it do specifically in the water? What, you, what do you want your fly to do? You know, is it supposed to swim? Is it supposed to crawl on the bottom? Is it going to hop like a shrimp and sink? You know, it, and that's what those trees are for, not necessarily to be the end-all, the be-all. I think um, at the beginning when my book came out, some guys from Africa made a, a kind of a, a joke of it, and all those trees led back to um, black woolly booger, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah, not my work. Like, yeah, it all it all narrowed down and led to one path, which was funny, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it makes sense when you're talking about like specific movements. You know, was it supposed to be doing? You know, if it's supposed to be floating, well, then we should think about you know, um, lighter hook shank. If it's supposed to sink, a heavier hook shank. You know, it's just not not everything's tied on the same hook. Um, uh, yeah, and, based upon, you know, and how yeah. it looks on the vice is definitely not how it's going to look in the water. And, you know, I'm, sometimes I'm amazed, too, and I've been doing this for forever, it seems like. But, you know, something that looks great on the on the vice doesn't necessarily um, act or look the same way in the water. And this is just kind of the general guidelines of, to get you to start thinking about that. Like, if we're going to be fishing this fly underneath docks, let's say snook lights, you know, you need to have a weed guard on there because it's dark and, you know, casting underneath a, an object is tough and you're most likely going to hit a dock pile, you know. So, and, you know, these are these are things that I kind of think about and, you know, how you lay it out on the hook, you know, as far as um, proportions and things like that. But all those factors go into developing, um, you know, a pattern to look like something that they're eating. And that's you know, really what it comes down to. And and like you just said, it's not only what they are eating, but when they are eating it, you know. Is it night? Is it cloudy yeah. water? You know, um, is it in crystal clear water? What You know, all these factors come into play. Recently um, I've been talking, I just wrote an article um, on a, uh, a, a new pattern. I've been working on a sailfin molly pattern, and it got me to start thinking about, like, seasonal eating. You know, um, not necessarily a, an issue here in Florida since we're pretty much farming year-round, but like in other places, you know, of the country, um, you know, you might not, for example, you might not buy strawberries 
in December. They might be on the shelves, but, you know, they might not be at the peak of freshness. And I think fish are kind of like that, too. There's phases or times that they're eating specific prey items because they're more prevalent or easier to find or it's just, you know, it's when they hatch. But, like, for example, like past crabs or uh, the mullet run, you know, those times of year when that when those prey items are at peak of season, if you will, that's what you're going to be emulating. And, you know, they're usually keyed in on a very specific size, shape, color, profile. And that's kind of what the, you know, what we're talking about with what they're eating and, you know, where are they eating it. Mm-hmm. You also talk about... Um durability, castability, and fishability. Can you uh, yeah. kind of expand on yeah, that? Sure. To further muddy the water. Um, yeah. You know, you, <laughs> you know the, the durability thing is great. You know, there seems to be kind of this uh, direct relationship between stuff that looks great on the hook in the water and how long it lasts. You know, materials like marabou, that are, you know, really soft and webby and they flow in the water and look really lifelike, typically after one fish, you're, you're shot. Um, castability is, you know, when you're tying flies that are really well, wind-resistant. Let's say we're, we want to emulate um, mullet. Well, you can tie a, a 12-inch mullet fly, but, you know, you better be pretty proficient at throwing one of the big sticks because you're probably not going to be able to get it out 60, 70 feet on a three weight, you know. So depending on the fish that you're going after, you have to be able to tie a fly, one, to match the hatch, if you will, or match the minnow, but two, it has to be uh, able to be delivered, you know, to where they're at. You know, fishability is, you know, once it's in the water, how does it move, you know, is it a good replica or is it, you know, fish sideways or, you know, there's all kinds of issues in fishability, but those are the kind of general guidelines I use for um, once you know what you're emulating and where you're emulating it, we're, now we've got to kind of tighten the screws a little bit and make sure that we can actually fish it effectively, right. if you will. Right. When you talk about durability, you mentioned marabou, and uh, that's been a, a favorite material for ages, right, uh, because of its life yeah. and so forth. But it, are there certain materials you really stay away from because of a durability issue, or and are there some materials, maybe marabou, that you just have to use because there's no replacement, even though it may not be durable? Well... Um, I don't know if I stay away from them, but um, I usually, you know, kind of partner them up with other materials to kind of beef up durability. I mean, I think there's an old trick where you, you know, wrap like a peacock quill with a, you know, a a Kevlar thread and then palmer that on. Little tricks like that to help, you know, add to the longevity of the fly. But, yeah, there's there's materials that, that I prefer not to use or you know, the other materials that are replacements. I, I love using natural fibers, fur, and, um, you know, I use a lot of different types of fur and hair in my patterns. You know, not that there's not a place for synthetics because they're way more durable and you don't have to worry about the quality of the material you're buying. They're usually more uniform, but 
you know, feathers are kind of the, you know, the old standby, but there's definitely quality issues and durability issues there, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's some things you just can't get away from. Uh, or you can't the get them, you know. I mean, when yeah. you're commercially tying, someone orders 25 of the same fly and you have to tie them identical, that's a problem, too, you know, because they might not all look the same if you tear up a whole cape to do crab claws after the first third's gone you know it's hard to make them all look similar if they're in a different die run or different individual animal or bird yeah yeah i can see that yeah so is there anything on the top of your head that you just say you won't use that you've tried and just didn't pass the any of the tests (laughs) things people should stay away from I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't use it. I don't use a lot of um, marabou just because it flattens out. I mean, there's a few flies I'll palmer in a collar or, you know, I use it in my detonator crab. Um, but I, I definitely tend to use materials that, you know, are like three fish flies, not one fish flies. You know, I, it, right. I, I'd rather use a softer hair than I would you know, a really delicate feather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because, you, know, uh, you know, the cost that goes into these flies nowadays and the time. Um, time, yeah, really time. Yeah. 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 You uh, know, once you blow like the rightness of a palmered feather, it kind of all unravels on you. Yeah. Not that you can't, you know, make it more durable, but, again, there's a time commitment there. Yeah, and uh, I suppose, you know, uh, Saltwater fish tend to have uh, more abrasive uh, gum lines <laughs> than maybe a lot yeah. of freshwater fish. <laughs> which so which gets way. you into the argument just how many big fish do you want to catch on one fly? You know, there for you me, go. if yeah. I catch, you know, if I catch a forty-inch snook on a fly, it's pretty much retired. It's going on the wall. You know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a good point too. It's just, uh, well, how many of those flies did you have to go through to get that? that uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for some of these fish, I'd contribute my whole fly box to the bottom of the ocean uh, for one of those fish. <laughs> you know, because uh, uh, some of them are so hard to catch. But, um, but anyway, um, and, and I say that, and you know, on. I bet you I've been fishing the same five-minute finger mullet for two months. You know, that fly just seems to be indestructible. You huh. know, you you can comb it out, and unless you get broke off, you just keep throwing it, you know, tighten throwing up the it, weed yeah. guard and get after it. Is that what you're throwing at snook down there? That's one of my go-tos, yeah. yeah. I mean, this time yeah. of year, I throw a lot of bait fish patterns and uh, little finger mullet patterns. Um, when it gets warmer, kind of, I'll go a little bit bigger. You know, you kind of go with the, the, as the get, bait gets bigger, the flies get bigger. Usually colder water, I go smaller. So okay. this time of year, it's, you know, one to two inch bait fish kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's time to uh, take our first break, so um, I can hang with me here. Drew, sure. we'll be right back, and we'll we'll talk about uh, more of your your techniques and, and tactics and so forth. So, sounds good. Watermaster 
is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick floats, I'm convinced that Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Drew Chacon about saltwater fly pattern development. If you'd like to ask Drew a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And uh, let's uh, talk, Drew, about um, thread selection and control. Um, you have some thoughts on that, on uh, a lot of the thread that's recommended out there. You may not agree with the recommendations. And uh, why don't you give us some tips on thread control as well when you're tying? Sure. So when I'm teaching, I generally teach the thread as a tool, and I use it a lot like a paintbrush. So when I'm painting the hook, if you will, to get a uniform thread wrap, most of the time I will spin it to unfurl it, which for a right-handed tire, I spin it counterclockwise, and that will flatten it out. It opens up the deniers and you know, you'll get kind of multiple fibers or filaments as you're tying. You can see it close to the hook where it separates. So that's a good technique if you're going to gather up, let's say, trimmed ends of deer hair or you want to build build the head of like a bonefish fly evenly. That's one little trick that I use a lot is I'm always de decompressing or spinning that thread to kind of open it up. If you want to cover the hook shank in nice, uniform, stacked thread wraps, you can spin it to the right clockwise for a right-handed tire and then use the thread like a guide. So like when I start the thread on the hook, I'll wrap the thread around the index finger of my non-dominant hand. Then I'll create a jam knot or an upside-down V, and then I wrap over the, the tag end but I keep that index finger taut, the thread pressure, so as I make consecutive wraps, the thread can slide down that guide, if you will, the tag end of the thread, and that helps me stack and count thread wraps. So if I'm going to do 100, let's say, dumbbell eye assemblies for contraband crabs, I'll start out and I'll cover the thread, um, I'll cover the shank of the hook, and then I'll go all the way to where the stopping point is, and I'll come back um, a certain number of wraps depending on the size of the hook. And that's how I count, and that's how I get um, to be uniform. And just like doing, like, um, let's say bonefish fly, for example. If I'm going to do one with a weed guard or with an overwing, let's just simplify it, with an overwing, let's say like a gotcha style fly, I'll typically start 22 thread wraps compressed, and that's where my eyes go. If I'm going to do one like a 
uh, coyote ugly and where the, the dumbbell eyes are close to the eye of the hook, I'll do, let's say, 12 thread wraps to put the dumbbells on if there isn't a weed guard and maybe 15 if there is. If I'm going to do a double weed guard. So you start to learn the thread that you're using and you use it as a tool to help your flies become more uniform. So for most folks, I'll tell them to, you know, to start out with lighter thread and break it. You know, start to put pressure on on the hook and learn what the breaking strength of the thread is. If you're going to be tying saltwater flies and you're comfortable using like 210 flat wax, which is kind of the standard in saltwater, by all means, get yourself a, like a one-off hook, put it in your vise, and, and give it the business. Break it a few times so you know how much pressure you can put on things. And, and that, that's a, you know, really helpful as well. Once you start to understand the thread pressure that you can apply, applying thread pressure and direction is also really important, especially with new tires or let's say like materials like feathers. That seems to be the bane of everyone's existence when you get into salt water is putting on like pails for like tarpon flies, like let's say like a splayed a splay tail for uh, a cockroach or like doing a married tail for a deceiver or crab claws or anything like that. The, the real key is the direction that you that you're applying pressure. So if you want those feathers to stay and not roll, you need to apply, apply uniform pressure up or down, not across the shank of the hook, um, because ultimately you're trying to balance a round ricus or a round feather against a round hook, which becomes pretty complicated. So some of the tricks I use, again, are flatten the thread out and then make a couple of loose wraps, but then when you apply your thread pressure, you apply it straight up to kind of pinch the feathers on the top of the hook or straight down if you're tying it inverted. So those are a few of the tricks I use with thread or techniques that I teach, so it's not quite as aggravating. Um, no. Yeah, unwrapping the, you know, the thread so that it's flat when tying uh, on material makes makes a lot of sense. I never really thought much about that, but but like you said, if you got a round hook shank and you got a round uh, whatever you're tying a feather, or whatever, and then you've got round thread, you got three round things all trying to <laughs> uh, to get something into place, which is pretty difficult. But if you take one of those elements out and flatten the thread, well, you've eliminated one of the problem areas right there it seems like and, so. and where that's really crucial um i find is uh bonefish flies i i tie an awful lot of you know size four size six bonefish flies where you have a bulbous head and everyone's looking for that bullet taper at the at the end and what happens is you end up having um the last few thread wraps slide which pushes the whole you know collection of thread wraps down to the eye of the hook and then you take a few off and you try to do it again and it's kind of a cascade effect so one that i mean that's one of the times where it's crucial stop what you're doing take the thread wraps back off 
spin the thread to the left if you're a right-handed tire and flatten it out. And then instead of trying to restack the thread and then whip finish, once it's flat, use the whip finish as, to shape the head the way you want it. So what I'll do is I'll get it so all my materials are on with one or two thread wraps. I flatten everything out, and then I'll whip it eight times, and I kind of stack those whip finishes closest to the eye, the, or the, the dumbbell eyes, the widest part, so I have a flat spot. Then I finish and, and take the, the whip finishing tool out. But, um, you know, when you're in a compressed area like that, if you're using a round thread, it's inevitable that it's just going to be aggravating. It's just going to keep sliding off. It cannot stay flat in the shape you want. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good tips, good tips. Um, let's talk about um, hook selection. And uh, Tom in Maine wrote in uh, a long, multiple questions <laughs> to get us started here. But he says, hi, Drew, when looking at saltwater hooks to tie with, there are some obvious hook model favorites that stand out for many tires, Kamigatsu, SC15, Daiichi, 2546, etc. With a catalog of options out there from numerous brands, can you help demystify some of the things we are looking for from your hooks that can make you choose one model over another? And how do you do each of the various aspects of the hook, hook gap, shank, uh, wire thickness, make it a better or worse platform to work from as a tire? And how do they affect your ability to hook and land fish? Um, other than variation in hook size, can one specific hook model cover a wide range of all uh, or, or all of the species? So lots of questions there, but uh, lots of okay. good, good questions. So. No problem there. So let's talk about the fish first. Um, I'm going to use my favorite, which is snook. Now, Snook don't have teeth, so we don't have to worry about hook shank length most of the time. If you're if you're targeting, let's say, kudas or mackerels, a lot of time you're going to use a long shank hook to get the um, leader away from the teeth. So that's why you use like a long shank versus a short shank. That long shank will actually act as a lever if you're using, uh, if you want to say you're tying for tarpon, which are very acrobatic fish, or golden dorado, which, you know, these, these fish jump a lot. You're going to want to go with a short shank hook because the longer the shank is, the more of a lever it's going to be when that fish is in the air to come free. The wire of the hook really just depends on what you're after. So let's go back to snook or tarpon or, you know, something that's a real brawny fish, a real bruiser, they're going to straighten out a standard wire or a thin wire if you're tying on a smaller size hook. So a lot of times you'll go with a smaller hook size but like a 2X wire, and that will accommodate the strength and durability you need, but it will help you keep the profile small. Like a big problem is tying inverted crab flies. When I was developing the um, contraband crab, one of the biggest issues I had was a hook that was small enough, strong enough, but yet had a wide enough gap where I could turn the hook hook point up and then fill that void or the gap with the actual fly. So if you're putting a piece of scotch pad or, you know, um, 
like let's say the Bowers crab, you're putting wool in the middle of that gap, you need to have enough room to create the bulbous shape of a crab, but still have, you know, a quarter of an inch of hook gap to effectively catch the fish. So it really just depends on what you're trying to emulate, the fish you're, and the fish you're really, you're going after. As far as brands, you know, there's so many different brands out there um, all creating unique hooks. Sometimes I tie on a mustad. Sometimes I'm on a gamagatsu. It just depends on the shape, the wire, the color. I mean, that's a big one now. Um, you know, skittish fish, sometimes you'll go to, like, a black shank hook. Like in Hawaii, those bonefish are PhDs. So uh, you don't tie on silver hooks. You're tying on black hooks there. It really just depends on the species and um, what you're trying to accomplish with the hook. Also, I think he goes into the platform here. Yes, the hook is going to be the base for what you're creating the fly on. So, like, if you're tying deer hair, you might need a longer shank hook just so you can compress the hair. You know, you need more canvas, if you will. If you're going to be using, like here, I'm just reading the question to make sure I cover it all. We did shank, length, wire thickness, platform, um, landing fish. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have one one hook that covers all species. You know, it really just depends on what you're trying to do with the hook and what we're after, I guess, is the... Uh, the easy yeah. answer. I wish there was a magic bullet, but there isn't. But there's some, that's and, something that uh, you seem to put a lot of thought into um, when, when you're designing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, just... I, before I had a senior moment there and spaced out, I was thinking about um, the other thing that I use the hook for is a keel. So on a lot of my bait fish patterns, I'll end up changing the hook if the fly doesn't ride where I want in the water column because you can use it as a weight source as well, or it doesn't have enough gap for the materials that I tie to, to straighten the hook out. Example is the bait fish. So like my five-minute finger mullet pattern, when I target big snook or tarpon, I've changed that to a, a bait hook, a short shank bait hook, because it's so such a heavy wire and it actually corrects the fly. As soon as it hits the water, one strip, I mean, that thing's tracking true. So you might change the hook for a specific scenario, uh, you know, at a certain time of year. You know, if you want the, the fly to ride a little bit deeper, you might bump up one wire size to give it a little more weight to get it down in the water column. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But okay, yeah, good. The, a hook, hook's a big, a big one for me. You yeah, know, yeah. Picking the right hook for the fly. Yeah, and um, hope like that helps. You know, that, yeah, that um, gap, uh, and you know, having enough area to work in <laughs> to create your, your, you know, your, um, your fly uh, is, is pretty important because, like you say, the yeah, crab I mean, stuff can have a hefty body. You know. That's, that was the issue we ran into with all those crab patterns for ferment. You know, it's, 
your tying, spending all these time, you know, tying knots in claws and dipping them in nail polish and marking up the legs. I mean, they're perfect replicas, and then the fish would eat them, and they wouldn't get hooked because you basically created a paperweight. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it just it didn't have enough effective gas to to do its job. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to us about uh, you wrote a whole section in uh, in Featherbrain about uh, UV materials. Uh, okay. What's your thoughts on on UV materials and whether they're worth uh, working with or, or using, or, and how you absolutely. So that's yeah. kind of uh, the one that I get the most questions about. I'm not a fish, so there's no way to specifically. I mean, I know there's been all kinds of testing on, you know, baby salmon and. You know, I've done a lot of research on it, what colors they actually see or UV reactivity versus UV re- reflectivity. But I believe that, you know, they it does play a, a big role. You know, colors like chartreuse and hot pink, they have a higher UV reactivity. You know, feathers are UV reflective. Dyed colors are UV reactive. So those are the ones that you shine your you know, UV, your your flashlight on them, they light up on your bench. And if fish and birds and bugs truly see in that UV spectrum, those colors are going to be visible a lot further than standard colors that don't have that reactivity. So I tend to hedge my bets in most of my flies and add little pops of color. Most of the time I don't overdo it with, flash or bright neons all the time. I mean, obviously, I have a few of my patterns, like my platinum pilchard, which is made from pretty much all flash, but um, that's used in a very specific place. And But most bonefish flies I tie, you'll put, like, a little pop of UV reactive material somewhere near the front to represent an egg sac or, a cl- like, a hot claw or something like that. They're attention grabbers. So that's really where the UV reactive and UV reflective um, materials come into place. You'll see a lot of companies, um, hairlines, using like their UV dyes before Sturt River went away. They they were doing all kinds of stuff with their UV reactive dyes. And I have a lot of materials, um, and basically what that means is, you know, when you put the light on, they light they light up. So the fish can see them at a greater distance. Uh, they're just attention grabbers yeah. in that low light spectrum. And it's important to remember that, you know, even if there is some light, it's going to be UV reactive where, you know, it might not be as visible in the with to the eye with, you know, visible light, if you will, but um, in low light situations like, overcast. That's why chartreuse and hot pink seem to work better. You know, um, it's, it's just able to be seen further, further away, and it, it really contrasts. Right. They're not typically right. found in nature. Yeah, and, and do you, um, I mean, have you found out these things through testing? I mean, on those overcast days? Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, I think Lefty said, if it ain't chartreuse, it ain't no use. Um, <laughs> I, there, there's a reason for that. You know, I 
Yeah. I fish a lot of yellows and chartreuse in overcast days for that reason because your standard flies just don't produce as well. Yeah, yeah. And Good. and the opposite is true in the middle of the day. Like bonefish, um, if you're fishing hot pinks and, you know, hot reds, a lot of times when there's a lot of light, they shy off it immediately. So you'll find that in the morning, low lights, and in the evenings, I'll throw, like, my tranquilizer shrimp because it's, you know, day glow. I mean, it's ridiculously bright. But if you throw that pattern in the middle of the day, it's not as effective or it spooks fish. And I'll go back to, you know, coyote ugly or patterns that match the sand, you know, when there's yeah. a lot of visible light. All we need is somebody to invent some, uh, you know, kind of like night vision goggles only, fish vision goggles, so we can dial in time of day, water density, and <laughs> it shows us exactly what the fish is seeing, you know. Wouldn't that be something, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the problem with a lot of these theories many times is, uh, you know, you only have your personal experience because we, we don't know what the what the fish are actually seeing. So, And I did my best yeah. to explain it in layman terms, you know, from what I've collected in data and tried to, you know, uh, explain, absorb myself. So I'm sure there's going to be some scientists out there that are going to say, yeah, but you didn't talk about this or what about that? And yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Did the best you could. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing yeah. the best I can here. You know, I, when I was writing this book, I was teaching kids all the time. They had a lot of questions. So I did a lot yeah. of research and this is what I got. Yeah. 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 Cool. Let's take another break, and uh, we'll be right back and talk more about uh, tying saltwater patterns. So, Looking for that shot at permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipprayKeyFishingLodge.com. Again, that's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Drew Chacon about saltwater fly pattern development. If you'd like to ask Drew a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, James in New York, New York, wrote in and he says, Drew, I'm tying some crab patterns from an upcoming trip to Florida for bonefish and permit. I'm curious as to how much weight I should add so the crabs settle naturally to the bottom. So this brings up sink rate so tell us how you manage you know that for your flies and what you need to take into consideration because when james talks about uh, florida bonefish and permit there's a lot of variables there still right yeah there's a lot of variables a lot of opinions theories (laughs) i i you know um sink rate's probably the most overlooked aspect of fly pattern development and 
definitely one of the most important. So most of the time when you get a strike, it's when the fly is falling through the water column. It's not when it's hopping or stripped. It's when it's settling. You want the fly to look natural in the water. For permit, the Dell Brown days when folks were putting giant, you know, lead eyes on crab flies to get them to the bottom as fast as possible, that was to emulate a, a fleeing crab as if the crab knew it had been spotted and it was getting down to the sand. And also when it hit the sand, it made kind of that, you know, iconic puff. You know, when it when a when a crab buries itself, it kind of digs in, and and those dumbbell or lead eyes were used to stir up the sand. The the only problem with that is if the fish didn't see the fly, it's gone. I mean, it's traveling through the water column at a rapid rate, and it also comes down like a sledgehammer on the water. So you have the you know, the chance of spooking the fish if you're if the cast is too close or or whatever. So, you know, the, there's two theories on that. Some guys like to tie lighter flies when they're fishing permit um, and that are cruising because they want to get way out in front of them and they want the fly to travel through the water column at a slower pace so it can be seen longer in that, zone in front of the fish. As the fish is traveling, the fly is slowly settling to the water column and it's in the strike zone longer. I guess the other option is to, to have it timed exactly how a crab would be. So a lot of times I talk about in the book, if you have those prey items and you drop one and you can time it and match your sink rate to the fly you're using up to that, then that's, you know, that's about as natural as it's going to look. You know, if you can get that sink rate identical to the size and shape, let's say a, a shrimp um, that's four inches long and you're using large dumbbell eyes or large bead chain eyes, rather, it's going to travel through the water column at a specific rate. And I can't tell you what that rate is because I don't know if you're using a monofilament or a fluorocarbon leader I don't know what materials you're using and how dense they are or how packed they are, how buoyant the materials are, how dense or how heavy the hook is. So there's a lot of factors that go into sink rate. But once you start to focus on that and dial it in, you can adjust those accordingly. Did I answer the question there? I'm not sure for James. Um, but Let's say on a size 4 hook, I typically start with a 5.32nd brass dazzle eye for a standard inverted merkin. That's, you know, Aunt Lydia's rug yarn, two hackles out the back, and a few rubber legs. That fly has proven effective all over planet Earth, and, um, you know, it's probably good to tie a few little bit heavier and a few little bit lighter and see how the fish are reacting for where you're you're throwing at them. If you're in deeper water, you're probably going to want to go a little bit heavier. If, you know, they're pushed up on the flat and you're fit, you're seeing them on rays in shallow water, it might behoove you to go a little bit lighter and, you know, not spook them, you know, lead the fish a little bit more. But those are kind of the, the, the big points around sink rate. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think you said uh, just a few minutes ago, um, 
you know, and maybe maybe I didn't hear you correctly, but um, you know, to actually see one of these crabs, uh, natural crabs, you know, how they sink, what they do, um, I think is a is a good way to understand what's going on. I know last time I was in Belize, we spent time on a flat because I was looking. We were looking under shells and rocks and everything, trying to find live crabs so that we could see what the colors were and so forth, just as we would in the trout stream, right? And um, yeah. what was amazing is probably within a couple hundred feet on this flat, almost every crab we picked up was, number one, a different color than the other one that we had just looked at. Yeah. I mean, it was like not consistent at all um, on the same flat. And these little guys are really light. There's not much to them, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, and they're uh, smaller than you think they are. Yeah, yeah. So it, it really kind of, of yeah made me Go understand ahead. more about it just by seeing the live crab, you know, that we're trying to simulate. So. Yeah, and that's when you start to realize that maybe color is not really as important because there are so many different individuals out there, purples and blues and greens, so... You know, Eric Leiser told me uh, one time, a mentor of mine, he said, nothing in nature is going to be one color. So feel free to blend colors. You know, it may look funny to you, but if you really put a microscope on something or, or look close at a crab or a shrimp, there's all kinds of colors in there. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the color, you know, you have a little more latitude with. Uh, the sink rate, the real thing is if it's sinking naturally and not pinwheeling or, you know, where on the hook are you putting the weight and what style of weight are you using so it, maybe you want it to fall at an angle, you know, like a fleeing crab or you want it to, descend, you know, descend through the water column um, parallel or perpendicular, you know, it just depends on what you want it to do, like a shrimp. You know, you, you might want it to come down completely, you know, parallel to the, the to the sand. You know, it, it's going to fall flat. It really just depends um, on what you're trying to emulate. And again, are you going to use lead wire? Are you going to use bead chain, dumbbell eyes, a bead on a on a piece of monofilament like an Avalon? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to affect the way the fly falls through the water column and tracks. So right. I wish now, it was, a, again, yeah. a one-size-fits-all answer. But Well, this brings up a, another question, um, kind of two parts here. Uh, Joe Holland in Salt Lake uh, City, he says, in your last podcast you talked about using Ziploc bags as your fly box system. Can you talk, he says, can you talk more about the system you use and name the manufacturer size of bags and how you keep it organized? But I also want to, as you talk about that, um, you know, we don't have the luxury of maybe tying on the boat most of the time, you know, or, or waiting yeah. a flat. So we have to have, you know, crabs that weighted differently to, to kind of, you know, pick and choose as we need them and as the, as the you know, the situation requires. So how do you organize the, the weighted ones? And uh, and then maybe you can go into more what what uh, Joe is asking uh, about, you know, your general organization of flies. So for crabs, I usually just put them in a waterproof box. And what I do is I'll put a marking on the bottom with nail polish. 
So my heaviest flies, I might put a single dot of white on a cream body or something that's not super-duper contrast, but, you know, I know what it is. So, you know, you can mark a claw or a leg or whatever in a certain style and then position them in the box so you know which ones are the heaviest for each of the patterns. Let's say there's three patterns and you tie three of each and, you know, the, the first one has an orange claw and you know that's the heaviest. Um, that's one way of doing it for, like, crab. Bait, bait fish, I use Ziploc bags because there's always a weed guard on them, and they never seem to look the same after I spend that much time, and then I stuff them in, in the little foam slit. It always messes up the bottom of them. So I leave them in, like, a one-by-four sleeve. So, you know, I take usually three or four of them, and I put them in another bag, and that's for a few reasons. One, so I can see everything real easy. Two, so the shape doesn't get messed up. And three, if for some reason it get, they blow out of the boat, they float. So because they're in a Ziploc bag and sealed, there's air in there. So even though, let's say, there's four or five bait fish in, in these Mylar sleeves, or not Mylar, in plastic sleeves, um, they're all sealed in one big plastic bag. Like, let's say it's a, a five-by-three bag that they all slide into, and then I zip that tight so there's a little bit of air in there. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what I do. Um, for so it sounds like you're fit, using the – it sounds like you're using the kind of sleeves you would deliver a um, – you know, uh, yeah, there's there would I, uh. I commercially tie for two, and the reason I do that is if I go crazy for my trip and I tie 5,000 flies, you know, and I only use two like usual, then they're all ready to go for sale for the ones that I yeah. would have brought on my trip, too. I take them back out of my bag, <laughs> organize them, and when you call and say, hey, Drew, I need a half dozen bait fish for my snook trip, I just take them off my, out of my bag. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Back into inventory. <laughs> so, That's it. Yeah, good. I good. only had so much time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Martin Coleman in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, wrote in. He says, "How have materials changed over the years to affect your patterns and your fishing?" Excuse me. Um, I think there's just a lot more choices now, and a lot of it's for ease and convenience. You know, back in the day, I used to uh, make a lot of dubbing loops, and I still do for some of my patterns, but there's so many amazing dubbing brushes out there. That really speeds up, you know, kind of building the shape of a cylindrical, like, mullet pattern. Or, you know, when I invented the – or came up with the five-minute finger mullet, I – I was building my own dubbing brush machine, and I finally found a guy that had one for sale – um, in, in Montana, and I bought one of those, but, you know, there were no dubbing brushes. We were, you know, we were making our own out of whatever we could stuff in there, but now, I mean, there's every color under the sun, every material. You can get them with rubber bands in them, and rubber legs, I mean, flash, spark, you know, you name it. There's just so many more options to use to make more realistic flies um, or, you know, representations that you name it. So, that's a big thing. Um, 
the UV acrylics have come night and day. You know, I, I remember um, when I wrote Featherbrain, one of the things I outlined in there, I think, was like a real, like, UV not sense, which they're using on, like, you know, for creating leaders on your knots and, you know, mending waders, I think one of them was for. But there's just so many options out there now, different formulas, thick, thin, UV reactive, colored, flexible. I mean, there's just every year more and more stuff comes out, and it gets more and more fun for me to experiment and, you know, try new stuff. But the old standbys still work. It's just you learn that some of the new materials will look different in the water or um, they're more translucent than deer hair or feathers. And, you know, you can really disguise the limit on what you're trying to, to do with yeah. it, you know, as far yeah. as sparkle or translucency. Oh, that was, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, we had a question come in on the Internet here uh, from Ed. He was wanting to know, do you make your own brushes? And explain how you do it, but it sounds like you don't do that much anymore. Is that? I do for um, for my mullet, my five minute finger mullet. I, that's one of the only patterns I still make all my brushes. Hmm. And and you use that machine you got from uh, somebody in my yep, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's basically a drill or a motor with a with a cup hook, and then another cup hook. You know. 15, 20 inches away from it on a spring. And you're creating a loop of wire, and then you're sandwiching whatever you want, whether it's fur or synthetics or hair or silly legs or whatever, in the middle of those two wires. And as it spins or furls together, you're creating a pipe cleaner. You're locking those materials in between the twists of the two wires. And the reason that second cup hook is on a spring is so it keeps tension on that wire as it contracts with more twists. So you you want it to keep it'll keep getting smaller. It's going to shrink in length, you know, an inch or two. But if you didn't have that, the whole thing would just explode before it had time to catch everything. Now is that the uh, is that the, the same machine you have in um, Featherbrain that you yeah so, yourself? I don't Yep, it's the only one I've got. Um, so that would be a good, if a guy, I mean, it seems like a guy could make that himself. Um, yeah, I've talked to a lot of people about making them as well, and you may see something in the near, near future coming out, a, a Drew Chacon dubbing brush machine. So oh, you might, might see that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, might, you might see something like that. From maybe our, our pals at Hairline Dub, I don't know. <laughs> okay, stay tuned. You guys want to, you know, keep track of Drew and uh, yeah, Marco. Latest Marco and I talk about a lot of crazy ideas I have for things all the time: fettuccine foam and crusher legs and stealth chain and all kinds of stuff that he makes for me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. That, that's that might, I'm, we're trying. Yeah, yeah. Um. We have uh, need to take another break here, but uh, hang tight, Drew. We're not done with you yet. Not here. <laughs> and we'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. 
The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York, and projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. Uh, FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind of experiences. These efforts won't be as nearly as effective without your help. If you are not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Drew Chacon about saltwater fly pattern development. If you'd like to ask Drew a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll try to answer as many of them as we can tonight on the show. Okay, um, Steve Bourne in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, and Steve has been on our show, um, uh, fishing the trout waters up in Wisconsin. We've, we've had a show with him on that. Uh, so um, good to hear your, your your voice through written word again, Steve. Uh, but he writes in, when tying baitfish style flies with Puglisci fibers or similar materials, some tires say flies should be as sparse and transparent as possible. Others favor a thicker, bigger profile. What are your thoughts? Okay, so here's my two cents on synthetics. Whether it's Puglisi or SF Fiber or any of them out there, um, there's a few pitfalls with them, but there's a, there's a lot of you know, benefits as well. The first being that those synthetics trap air. So that's one of the reasons I tie with yak hair, because if I'm sight fishing a fish and um, and I have to cast ahead of them and then yank the fly to get through the water column because the fly floats, that's a problem for me. So that's why some folks say they got to be really sparse so the hook weight is enough to go through the water tension or surface foam to get down to the fish. Otherwise, you'll, you know, you're taking, you know, you're combing them out or you're holding them over the side and kind of massaging them in your hand to get all the air bubbles out of the head of the fly before you throw them. So, like, if, if I'm tying my five-minute finger mullet with SF fiber, you know, I love the way it looks. I love the consistency. I love the, the color and sparkle. I'm not going to change it. So I just deal with it. And as soon as I, you know, get my line stripped off and I get set up on the front of the boat, I'm getting all the air out. And I just know that that's what it is, and, and it's fine. But for, like, bait fish patterns or, you know, other patterns where I'm going to use a, a wider profile, I try to go with a, a coarser fiber. Um, and that's why I go with yak hair because it's it saturates, it doesn't trap air, it's a little more durable. It doesn't um, get gummed up. A lot of times, you know, fish slime will get stuck in synthetics, any of them. So well, because they're a little bit more supple or fine. So, uh, you know, for the most part, I would err on the side of more sparse. Tying heavy flies with synthetic 
yeah, maybe there's some benefit to profile so it doesn't compress as much, but that's why I go to a coarser hair, and if you're really interested in a super wide profile that can be seen, you're going to go to darker colors like purple and black, or you're going to, when you glue the eye on, you're going to fan out those materials, which is a little trick I do. Um, I'll add twice as much glue than you than I think I need, and I work that into the hook shank, and then I'll lay the, the head of the, the bait fish fly out the way I want, shape-wise, and let it cure for a few seconds, and then I'll put on the eyeball with another little application of glue afterwards, and, and basically you're gluing the eye to the glue. So um, that's how you overcome those softer synthetics from compressing. You go from, you know, a three-inch bait fish profile to a one-inch once it's wet. But if you add that extra glue, you can kind of cheat the system. Interesting, interesting. So um, uh, I don't know if I answered Steve's question at all, but um, I, yes, for most of the part, if I can't see through the fly when I hold it up, it's too thick. Okay, okay. That's a good uh, rule of thumb, huh? So it's maintaining that. It's not actually how thick it is, but maintaining the profile while in the water, right? I mean, as you just said, when you're going yeah, to the that's, that's part of it. And the other thing is, like, really thick flies, they're bulky. They're kind of cumbersome. You know, they they trap a lot of air, and mm-hmm. a lot of times they just kind of become this cylindrical mass they, when they compress. Yeah. There's just too much material there. Less lifelike, I suppose, as well. Yeah. Water. Yeah. Okay, I've got a bunch of questions here from people that have wrote in, and I want to, they're not so much as, uh, you know, specifics on time, but I wanted to make sure they get answered, and then we'll come back and we'll finish up with uh, whatever we can in the way of tying uh, techniques and so forth. Uh, Scott in Truckee, California, he says, do you have any go-to searching patterns for flats fishing when you don't see tailing or feeding fish? Yeah, um, I usually start with either a fly that moves a lot of water or a fly that makes a disturbance. So my kind of blind casting pattern for, like, muddy water, you know, creeks or things like that is my Tuscan bunny. It rides higher in the water column, and it moves an awful lot of water, and it's just got a lot of lifelike movement. So I go dark with that so it silhouettes. I get a lot of eats on that fly when I don't think there's even fish there. Um, the, the other fly I'll use a lot is like a popper, like a double barrel popper or my disco shrimp pattern if I'm over a grass flat, something that's going to make noise, make a disturbance. Those are good searching patterns. Like uh, white noise is, is a good bug if you're just kind of, hoping and hoping, trying to find fish. The other thing you can do is go real bright. So um, sometimes I'll fish like a a five-minute finger mullet in white and with a chartreuse head or an electric yellow head, something that's really going to be seen from a long distance. Or, you know, a, a red and white Tuscan bunny, something with a lot of contrast. Those are probably the flies I use. Like I'm not really sure of an area or where I'm just kind of testing the waters. Yeah, yeah. 
Bob Gillespie in Sioux City, Iowa. He says, I fished the backwaters in Fort Myers two weeks ago and caught several snook on a white deceiver. Um, I kept catching fish, so did not try anything else. Is there another fly I should be trying? That's right in your neck of the woods, isn't it? Yeah. If you're catching fish, Bob, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, <laughs> you, you, can try to, you can try to catch them on something else. I mean, if you're sick of catching them on the fly you got. But uh, <laughs> catching fish usually isn't the time to change flies. Um, yeah. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe That would be my advice there. What other flies would you use in that area since you know that area so well? I... Uh, again, I use um, bait fish patterns a lot. I use mullet patterns, you know, kind of my wheelhouse or, you know, my GT pinfish for up against the mangroves. I use a Tuscan bunny for, you know, blind casting or sometimes I even use that for tailing fish like redfish because it, you know, makes such a disturbance and they can feel it. I use my Sanibel Cannibal in clear water and I use... Um, like uh, my Caloosahatchee cannibal or micro-mangrove cannibal a lot in, like, the muddy or stained water, you know, like a little bit darker. I use a five-minute finger mullet um, if the fish are really spooky, but I can see them because it comes down so soft um, compared to, the, you know, like a Tuscan bunny, which the, the water saturates the tail, so... You know, if I if I got plenty of lead time, I'll use that fly because I like the movement. But you know, it just depends on the scenario and where I'm at in Fort Myers. There's an awful lot of water here. Let's see what other patterns you'd be using. If you're if you're throwing at sheep's head or redfish that are tailing, I most of the time I'm throwing a contraband crab, you know, in green or brown or purple you know, something darker, so it looks like a mangrove crab or a flats crab. Um, what else here? Um, you know, if we're hitting crab pots, I'll throw a little shrimp fly, like a coyote ugly or swamp cabbage shrimp, if we're chasing triple tail. Um, oh, that's a lot of different yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where, where are we going? Cobia, Elbies? I mean, you tell yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he was mainly interested in snook, so uh, I think you covered more than the bases there. Uh, Warren in Lake Charles, Louisiana, wanted to know uh, the two most recommended colors for clouds are minnows along the Louisiana and Texas Gulf Coast. I bet you one's chartreuse, right? Yeah, I think chartreuse over white <laughs> is kind of the go-to. If I had to pick one other one, I'd say either red and black or purple and black. You know, those are kind of the, you know, the bright whites and, you know, attractor patterns. Or the other side of that coin is the flies that silhouette. So yeah. black and purple, stuff that can be seen um, as a fish is looking up into the light. Yeah. And that kind of applies to, like, uh, bunnies too, right? I mean, you know, when you're uh, – Fishing for for tarpon or whatever, you, you you know you're going for that silhouette pattern many times. Right? Yeah, any you know snook, tarpon, trout, anything that kind of feeds in that upward facing direction, as opposed yeah. to like redfish, bonefish that are feeding down. If they're looking up into the a lighted area, it's easier to see those darker colors from the bottom up. 
So that's, you know, most supplies I throw in deeper water are going to be dark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Martin Coleman, Glenwood Springs, Colorado, again, asks, um, what's the most innovative pattern you've created or seen recently? Um, the one you're tying now? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. That, that's a great question. I, I think it kind of changes every day. There's just so many innovative tires out there, and, you know, I'm always happy to see new techniques and what what everybody's doing. I guess if I had to pick one of mine, I'd probably say the Tuscan Bunny doing shredded foam and spinning it like deer hair was probably one of those right. moments where I'm, you know, I'm not really sure how I got to that point, but you know, we it works. Yeah. yeah, you know, it was just it just happened to it work for adjusting where the fly rides in the water column without being saturated. So yeah, yeah. for me, I would say that's probably the most innovative thing I've done. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, everybody yeah. seems to have their own opinion. Yeah, and everybody, you'll have to just uh, look that up on the Internet, uh, Tuscan Bunny, and see what he's talking about. Uh, or get one of his books. That's in the um, uh, that's in the Tarpon book, isn't it? From uh, Yeah, it's in Featherbrain, too. Oh, it is? Okay, good, good, good. There you go. A couple of little things to close out. We only got a few minutes left here, but you kept talking about the five-minute finger mullet. And um, one thing I was noticing is uh, you spent a lot of time talking about the shaping of that fly. Can you can you talk about that on what your your you know how you go about that? Because that seemed to be pretty important on that fly. Sure. So um, I guess when when you look at it, it looks like a carrot. That would be the easiest way to describe it. But to get to that, you're gonna you're gonna shape the head first. So the first thing I do is I'll make two cuts, one on each side of the eyes, and I kind of line my scissors up, you know, parallel with the hook, directly off the mono post of the eye, and that's gonna set the sh- the the width of the fly. And then what I'll do is I'll turn the fly over and I'll cut an opening for where I want the gap, the the hook gap, in the hook gap, how wide I want the belly of the the fly or the head of the fly to be inside the shank of the hook. I've never had to really do this without showing anybody, so bear with me. (laughs) Um, You know, from there, once you kind of get the head shaped and you're, um, once you have those, you know, three cuts made, you kind of round the head out. From there, you're going to fan the tail material two ways. So the first thing I do is I fan it. If it was the hook was in the vise and the standard, just hook point down, I'm going to fan the tail out so it's flat, like a parallel to the, the bench. And then I'm going to make two cuts, one from the outside edge of the eye to the middle of the tail, and then one on the other side. So you go from kind of this wide fan to now a, a carrot shape. And then I comb the fly out, and then I do it the opposite direction. So I do the same fan, but now it's perpendicular to the bench, if that makes sense. And then I'm going to make a cut right down the back of the fly towards the tail. And what that does, it thins out and tapers that tail and body shape, but 
you still have enough material so you're not coming in with your scissors and, you know, shortening the length of the fly, but you're reducing the amount of material so as the water comes around the, the bulbous head or the packed area, the higher density of fibers, it's going to travel towards the rear where it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and make the fly swim. So yeah. trimming it, it's, it's important that, one, you have enough removed from the bottom of the head of the fly so the gap is free, but, two, that you've also thinned out the rear beyond the bend of the hook so there's some movement. Otherwise, it's just this block of synthetic flash, right? Um, yeah. So it, it pays to have had some hairstyling lessons in the past, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, when I, when I started, I got a pair of, um, like, sideburn trimmers. Right. And I would hold them in a spot and then rotate my vise so I could get a perfectly cylindrical shape because I didn't have to, like, come in with my scissors. But I've done so many now, you know, you can do them in your sleep. But it, when I was yeah. starting out, um, it, it does a great job at trimming deer hair. It's fantastic for doing the heads of those mullet. But if you make a mistake, it's forever. Sure <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, cuts, it cuts a lot of hair off or synthetic yeah. off real quick. So you yeah, got to be, you know... Real careful. <laughs> Don't make any yeah, quick yeah. movements. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time, Drew, but uh, we didn't get to everything I wanted to talk about, but uh, we sure covered a lot of bases, so uh, I'm appreciative of your time. Uh, stick with me, though, for a few more minutes because um, we're going to give away your book and uh, some of the other prizes like the membership to the Fly Fishers International and one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And, again, like I just said, uh, your book, Featherbrain. So, um Hang tight, and we'll be back uh, to do just that. The Bristol okay. Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. Pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal land may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more about how you can get involved. Again, savebristolday.org. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, now it's time to give away our prizes. And uh, the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register, for tonight's show, it's too late, but make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on uh, any of these uh, chances to win some of these great prizes we have to offer. So um, if you are the lucky winner, uh, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we'll be giving away is a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. And to uh, learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, flyfishersinternational.org, and uh, join the team there. Uh, our winner there is Brian Daly, Brian Daly in Georgia. So congratulations, Brian, on winning that one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. And uh, thanks for uh, playing and uh, being part of the show. And our second...
Enterprise is the one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Amato Books has uh, a lot of periodicals as well as books on fly fishing, so check out uh, their inventory there. And our winner there is Chris Simmons, Chris Simmons uh, in Utah. So congratulations, Chris, and thanks again for uh, participating. Well, now we'll give away Drew's book, Featherbrain, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And if you don't win tonight, you can also find uh, that book in the right-hand column of our website, as well as links also to Drew's other books, like his Saltwater Top Saltwater series uh, through Wild River Press, his Largemouth Bass Flies, Tarpon Flies, Redfish Flies, and you just came out with Redfish Flies too, right, Drew? I did, yep. They're both, all my books are paperback or e-books, so if you want to lug them around, you can download them on your mobile device as well. There you go. So lots of books there, and there's, uh, we don't have them all listed, but uh, you can also go to Drew's website. Oh, yeah, what's, uh, drop your domain name, Drew, so everybody can know where to find you. SaltyFlyTying.com. Yep, SaltyFlyTying.com, and then you can... Uh, if you need any flies, you can go there. And uh, Drew also says has some materials on his site, so check that all out when you go to his site. So um, let's see. Uh, just a real simple question tonight. When Drew uh, Drew was talking about thread control and so forth, what's the one thing he did to get better thread control and uh, keep his wraps tighter and flatter? So uh, let me know what he did to do that, and uh, you can be the winner of Featherbrain. So, again, Featherbrain from from uh, Stackpole Books. Uh, again, Stackpole, great publisher of all kinds of books, fly fishing. Be sure to check them out. So we'll see if we have anybody that was paying attention here, Drew. And uh, uh, okay, okay put everybody to sleep. Yeah, this one, uh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got one in here that says steady pressure, lots of room. That's not really the key thing that I was looking for. Uh, uh, and um, let's see. Um, we got... Uh, John, okay, I think John's got it here. John Gilbert in Spokane, he says flattening the thread. And that's what I was looking at, uh, looking for. So, John, uh, you got yourself a feather rain book, which will really help you in your fly tying. So, congratulations, and um, thanks for paying attention, and thanks for, for playing. Uh, let me just do a little housekeeping here. And... Um, so what you need to do, John, is send me your address. You can use the same uh, form that you just used. Send me your, your mailing address so that we can get Stackpole to ship uh, that copy out to you. So thanks again for paying attention and playing. Uh, we really appreciate it. So, um, Drew, again, thank you so much for being with us and taking your time out. I know it's getting late there, and uh, yeah. hopefully the kids are all in bed, I, I assume, by now. But, uh, 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 yeah, thanks for sharing I... your expertise with us again. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I, uh, like I said, I could talk about this stuff all night. So yeah, anytime yeah, well, you want to chat about flies, <laughs> okay. let me know. 
Yeah, well, that's great. Well, uh, the, the teacher in you sure comes out, so uh, we appreciate that, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, uh, uh, and uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, hopefully, you've all found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just take a look in the link on the top-line menu. You'll, you'll find uh, in our archive past shows over 285 shows now that you can search for by keyword or keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River, uh, just whatever you can think of. Type it in, and you'll probably find a show on it. So go ahead and explore it. I'm, I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you discover. Our next broadcast will be on March 6th, uh, I mean March 20th, I'm sorry, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Pat Dorsey. And our topic for the show will be the South Platte River, the ultimate challenge. Pat has been guiding for more than 25 years and calls the South Platte River in Colorado his home waters. The South Platte can be one of the most challenging world-class trout fisheries in America. Pat knows this water better than most any other guide. Listen in to hear his strategies and tactics for successfully fishing this outstanding fishery. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Whipbreaky Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future lives. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.